Now, you've got a gardener you personally dislike. So what? You don't have to like your gardener. As long as he does a good job and your wife's happy, forget it. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dear Gardener. I'm broadcasting to you from Copenhagen. In the week of Prunus Kanzan, we are at the high point of that quintessentially suburban cherry trees blossoming. I was out for a run on Wednesday morning with a friend who is not from our world, is from a world far removed from that of horticulture, someone who cares more about defence policy and, and serious things like that. And even he noticed them and was able to ask, my goodness, what are those trees? It's a penetrating kind of plant, something that can enter the head of even the most plant blind. And for that, I love it. I think that today this podcast is going to be slightly bookish because I have been reading as much as I have been gardening. And for that reason, I beg to be slightly indulgent and begin with a reading in honour of the week of Prunus Kanzan from my own book in which I discuss this tree. A bit of context, I'm writing about London and specifically about the trees of London and wondering why on earth London Plain is the emblematic tree of the city when actually if you look at the tree surveys, if you look at the work done by the Greater London Authority, the plane tree is nothing. The tree of the city is the ornamental cherry, the prunus. And it's quite a remarkable tale, really, because ornamental cherries weren't much planted prior to the 20th century. The big Edwardian and Victorian tree, and when I say big, I mean mid-sized to small, i.e. the tree of the front garden, the tree of the proud suburban homeowner was lilac and viburnum, those very, very old-fashioned things. And then from the Edwardian period onwards, we get this ramping, ramping, ramping up of the cherry tree until we reach the position we're in now, when whole streets can be snowed with blossom in particular weeks of the spring. You'll hear a little bit about that when I start reading now. The rise of blossom is the great untold story of the 20th century. We have breeders and enthusiasts to thank. Men and women in Europe, America and Japan, the ornamental cherry's homeland, who formed societies, published bulletins and hunted lost specimens in old gardens. When their experiments and rediscoveries reached nurserymen, the market was flooded with new cultivars. There were chrysanthemum-flowered pinks, weeping forms, upright columns and patio-friendly dwarfs. By 1948, the ornamental cherry was popular enough to earn a lashing from Vita Sackville West, who described the cultivar Kanzan as gaudy and derided it as ubiquitous in the gardens of bungalows, villas and suburbia. I agree with Vita. Kanzan is gaudy, but it is also a masterpiece. It is big, pink and double-flowered, and is only everywhere because it is fun. There is a majestic specimen growing from the hedge, at number 53 Grove Park. It has been perfectly pruned over the years, gently shaped to the space, with none of the brutal mid-limb amputations that so often blight the cultivar. 
Kenzan is perhaps the most hacked-at tree in London. It grows neatly upwards when young, and will flower at three years old while still in its showroom pot. Thus, it inveigles its way into spaces that are too small for its spreading, stout-trunked old age, and is everywhere crudely butchered. As a child, Christopher Lloyd adored its deep rose blossom and copper-tinged young foliage. But in 1994, at the age of 73, he admitted he had outgrown it. This cooling affections was not something he wished to impose on other gardeners. Rather, he hoped they would feel its thrill as he once had and ignore the killjoys who point out that Kanzan is considered vulgar in some circles. Those who seek to impose their standards on others are missionaries, he suggested, and missionaries are sometimes turned against and murdered for being busybodies. There we go. Missionaries turned against and murdered for being busybodies. I don't know if you'd write that in a newspaper column today. There's lots of missionaries at the moment in the gardening world. I don't think that I'm one of them, but I have been writing about lawns. There's no Mo May as well. I've been writing about lawns for the RHS. Given the brief to write the history of lawns, which could be quite a dull affair, but I think I turned it into a pretty good article. There's some atomic chemical warfare. There's some Francis Bacon, Albertus Magnus, who is something of a household saint here. Albertus Magnus, the the medieval writer who wrote a treatise on gardens, and he hangs as a sort of house genie, a portrait of him above the the entrance to to this house above the door there a little a little portrait we found in a second-hand bookshop in Cartagena of all places so it was nice to it was nice to slip him between <laughs> between the pages of the RHS journal anyway i didn't advise that all lawns should be spared the lawnmower forever but trod my normal line of of do what feels best, a sort of fence-sitting coached in aesthetic terms. But there we go. I have to say that I've kind of been driven away from from Twitter of late by the way that the gardening is a series of, of little campaigns now run, run by people wanting to find fault. And I think that that's not really the spirit of horticulture because there is fault to be found in this world, all sorts of fault. We live in fields of fault, but most of them aren't in, in back gardens. Most of them are in car parks and car culture and the horrible concrete spread of modern life. And that is what we should rail against and rail together rather than the setting three versus setting five versus setting the lawnmower on fire settings of the lawnmower. Carl, I suppose you need a job now. I need a garden. Well, I have one. Not like this, of course. My name is Mrs. John Bennett. I live at Via Tintillo. I'll talk it over with my husband. Why don't you come by tomorrow about noon? Thank you. My gardening this week has been rather shameful, I'm afraid to admit. I've made a series of horrible blunders 
and committed some horticultural sins. Uh, sins against the world of horticulture and sins against my own garden, I'm terribly sorry to say. Firstly, I went to the little local supermarket and bought a load of herbaceous perennials from that stack of Dutch trolleys that they just get dumped in their foyer to, to slowly dry out and die. And I know I should be supporting independent nurseries. And I know that this is not the way to buy plants. I was buying Salvia nimorosa, the little woodland sage that grows best in full sun. Is it a woodland sage then? It's in the name, the Woodland Sage, Nimorosa of the Woodlands. And I found these plants remarkably, remarkably cheap, which is obviously the seduction. But they were at least labelled Nimorosa, not just Salvia, as sometimes you find. But they were labelled with their cultivar as mixed. And a big picture of some purple and some white Salvias in flower. Now, I only want the classic purple. So I had to do a rather shameful unstacking and repacking there in the supermarket. I was looking for the red tinge on the internodes, guessing that those with the darker internodes have more of the pigments that will be on the final flower spike. So I think I managed to get all purple salvias at a very low price, but I'm sure at a cost. It's not it's not something unique to me. I've been reading a very good book this week, Husbandry by Isabel Bannerman, which I do recommend if anyone is looking for a good horticultural book. I like it because it's very, very lightly written, by which I don't mean fluffy or glib or dumbed down. It feels like it has come from a brain rather than from a series of little sound bites. How can I make this clever? It's got a slightly repetitious feeling. You go over the same plants again and again. But that's how we experience our gardens. Our gardens aren't about, well, on this day I looked at this plant, on this day I looked at that plant. Our gardens are constant returns to the same plants that we like and dislike, that we worry about. And that happens in the book. She goes back and back over the same plants and the same fundamental dislikes or passions, mainly passions, which I think is I think is a good sign in a book. Uh, approach from different angles, which is how which is how life works, is how we all think. Anyway, one of the things in the book is that their best lavender hedges in the new garden, which is the subject of, of the, the piece, are from B and Q. <laughs> they drive around desperately try to find all of the the um the lavender plants delivered to the being crews across across Somerset, which is something that I've done and is what I was doing in that shop in the same way. They're very good as well, very good advice in there, very good pictures for giving instant establishment to what is a very new garden by spending basically all the budget on vast whacking great lumps of topiary of topiary rather, and letting all the froth and frill and cheap little annuals do their work beside it. Which I think is very good for general approaches, particularly if we're going towards more wilderness gardens, more wild and woolly and unmown gardens. You do need those beehives. You do need something to say, time is here. It exists within this garden. 
But if someone as as brilliant as as her and her and her husband, garden makers of of much renown, are scouring the discount aisles, then I think so can I. The shame in it isn't in my garden. It's not about the worry that people will come around and say, my goodness, I recognise that that plant. That's a co-op 365 salvia. It's that it damages the industry somewhat and we shouldn't be encouraging people who are not putting proper cultivar names on their plants and who are growing them all in computer-controlled warehouses and bussing them out to us in this floppy, sappy state. But the trouble is that all happens so far from, <laughs> from my shopping trip, so far from our gaze. It's a constant dilemma. I've been reading another book actually this week. I've read Rebecca Solnit's brilliant book, Orwell's Roses. It's a wonderful biography, a bit like Ruth Skurr's biography of Napoleon with the gardens as the gimmick. It's George Orwell tied to the roses he planted in 1936 from a local Woolworth shop. Essentially, she's making the argument that she takes from that fantastic phrase of the suffrage movement over in America. She's making the argument that they did, which was, all must have bread and roses too. Or is it bread for all and roses too? That's the more poetic way. Bread for all and roses too. And Orwell's life and writing is often seen as the bread, as the meat, as the political fight, as the anti-totalitarianism. But actually, she points out that in his writing and in his life, there is all of this roses stuff. There is the conservatism with the small c, which led to the love of the countryside and etc, etc. But anyway, it's a great, great book focused in all of these things but part of it it takes place in Colombia in the on the Bogota savannah and all of those great big rose growing warehouses and it's a very obvious example of when we buy cheap from supermarket forecourts we we encourage we got encourages unfair on us but it's true we we contribute towards these incredibly precarious degraded workers who have horrible conditions miserable pay and thorny thumb spiked lives out there in those plastic polytunnels and i don't think that these plants will have done damage in that sense but they do come from a world of horticulture a world of Dutch mass propagation that probably, if I thought about it consciously, I don't support. But yeah, there they are. There they are growing in my garden. Well, not growing yet. Not quite growing yet because I haven't planted them out yet. They are so lush and so obviously climate controlled that I'm doing the little in-out dance. They're going to spend a, a night or two coming in, a night or two, a day or two rather, sitting out there in in ever-increasing bits of sunlight i'm going to inch them out until they can take a little bit of full sun and then whack them into the borders sorry i shouldn't have said that whack them into the borders isn't it fantastic rosa he's only been here a few short weeks and already everything's changing things need to be growing everywhere yes ma'am he has the power well i'd say he has a green thumb 
Have you ever heard that expression, Rosa? <laughs> oh, yes, senora. But I don't mean that. It's just not natural the way everything is growing so fast. Well, maybe he's a magician. My other great failure this week has been in the pricking out of a load of gypsum full of elegance that I sewed far too thick. I sewed them after I'd had a few bad germinations that um, I talked about in the episode last week. And they all germinated. Germinated cress thick, thicker than cress. And they are so tightly woven together, I was terrified of disentangling them. So I tried to prick them out almost too early. The second pair of leaves, the first true leaves, weren't really emerged. They were just poking up, which meant that they were incredibly fragile. But already the roots were terribly, terribly entwined. Seeds, unfortunately, when they send up stalk above and root below, don't do it in a perfectly straight line, as if the seed were a slowly disappearing bead on a on a string pulled taut what they do is send out the stem with a little hook in it and the root the same so that they can twist and turn around each other and tangle terribly so trying to tease apart these minute things led to all sorts of root ripping and <laughs> damage and cursing I eventually prigged them out into little in little individual trays and they look so terribly, terribly sad and small there. It's heartbreaking. They're like hedgehogs in a in a sanctuary. Little tiny baby hedgehogs being kept alive by, by tubes. And you think they shouldn't be here. They should be they should be doing something more natural out there. If I'd known they were going to germinate so easily, I think I'd have just broadcast them over the beds which is what I'll do for the rest of the packet. I've also been chopping up some Saxifraga Gros Erbium, London Pride. You are spared reading from the London Pride chapter of my book. Oh, no, <laughs> no, I won't. Um, which is multiplying like bacteria under my, my hand. I'm chopping it in half every year because it, takes well to being chopped in half with a very very sharp spade last year there were two there are now four sliced straight down the middle and they're happy they are growing away they're at the stage where there is a little pink nub of proto buds at the center of each fresh rosette soon that will be thrust up and tinkling so light and fairy like above the plants and i probably do the same again next year and mathematicians among you can, can work out how many years until, until the world is entirely covered in my little divided saxifrage plants. Propagation is a slow way to garden, but a mighty rewarding one. I want to get to the stage with this garden where there is enough of it to give. For giving a little bit of plant, I think is the most stylish way to turn up to a, a house, a little bit of, of something delightful to put in their garden. Only works with people who have very large gardens that they can lose anything unwanted in. Otherwise, it's a bit presumptuous. It's like with cut flowers. 
they are perfect because they are temporary. You can give them as a gift and whoever receives them knows they're going to die. So if they're not their colour, they're a plant they can't possibly abide, well, it's only a week and then I can chuck them out. But give someone a Phelanopsis that they hate, a houseplant they detest, they have to keep it forever. That's why we don't give permanent gifts. You don't turn up at a house and say, oh, I got you a, a saucepan. Firstly, because they might not want your crummy saucepan, where they're going to store it. And secondly, because there's, I suppose, a little bit of a, an implication. I saw you couldn't afford a saucepan, so I bought you a saucepan, old bean. And if someone has a very, very tiny garden and you bring them a whacking great division of hemorrhoicalis, then well, they've got it forever and it's, it's taken up a, a quarter of their growing space. Though if they have acres, then you can give them as much hemorrhoicalis as they want, and they'll say, okay, great, 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 great. I'll, I'll put that in a, in a lovely bed I've just prepared uh, behind the, the mower shed next to that nettle, and everyone is, is happy. So I'm going to get to the stage where there are bits of London pride flying around the world, little bits of Napita. I've been propagating some Napita Walker's Low, uh, a garden centre purchase, bought at this time of year when they are so flooded with auxins and hormones. They are teenage and bursting with <laughs> potential for, for growth. So you, you can just whip off the stems, strip off the lower leaves, stick them in some good well-drained compost and let them go. I chopped these off two weeks ago and exactly two weeks later, Sunday to Sunday, I was able to see roots emerging from the bottom of the two-litre pot in which I put all the cuttings. I think I'll leave it another week for them to get down and then divide them and suddenly have eight new plants. So if you, if you know me and invite me to, to anything good in the coming months, then pretend to be surprised. <laughs> pretend to be surprised at, at your gift. He was all right yesterday. I saw him working in the garden. Carl, what's wrong? No, it's Ralph. Oh. He's coughing blood. Oh, dear. Get Dr. Lombard. Propagation aside, I've been doing a little bit of cutting back. Cut back some ivy to give a bit more light to a bed. I checked, obviously, for my nesting birds prior to that and realised this was the time to do it because the berries have finally all gone, been consumed. The flowers are a long way off. Its nature value is at its lowest. So I went in there and got hacking and cracking. It's a pretty poor end result. It looks very ugly because it's just a load of bare ivy stems on a fence now. I want to get it to that shimmering green wool stage. But prior to that, it needs to go completely bare. Ivy on a fence or a wall is a tricky beast. It needs to be clipped an awful lot to keep it crisp and modern looking. And there's always a danger as well that you ruin the line. You ruin this, this wonderful decorative modernist block by having a great lumpy bulging stem coming out of the bottom 
and stems are, are lovely things but if you're going for that aesthetic then I think it's better to hide it somehow in a, a little a little hedge a little evergreen hedge a little bit of box a fine ivy wall behind it and you're good to go I'd like to recommend the garden as a tour for the hospital fund. Oh, didn't I tell you, Gladys? Actually, Ralph didn't do this. Ellen has a new gardener, Carl. A dense hedge of box reminds me I've been delving back into one of my favourite subjects this week, which is archaeobotany. It's the archaeologist's take on what people grew and gardened with. And I love it because I, I do love archaeologists and their ways of thinking, talking and writing. And I obviously love, I love botany and gardens. And they're talking about box in Roman Britain and how it might have been used. And it's all, uh, we believe that it was planted in dense plantings with a strictly delineational aspect, a dividing line, a separation of the liminal public space of the street from the private, the sanctuary within. And of course, what they mean to say is, is hedges. Romans use it as hedges, but they have all this wonderful archaeological language surrounding it. I mean, it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? It's a bit of a joke that everything, everything had a sacred purpose. Roman gardens are always discussed as places of, of, of health and cleanliness and almost of, of purging, rather than places do you think, well, what if they like things that, that look nice? Although undoubtedly, I suppose health does play a big part in the writings about it. There's a great letter from Pliny the Younger. I can't remember which of the letters it is. I think it's one of the, there's two very, very famous villa letters where he describes his villa, which are probably some of the foundational texts in garden history and he's talking about how the countryside and gardens particularly are so good for health and the evidence of this is that when I move my slaves to work for me out here in the countryside none of them seem to die a sentence that tells a horrible truth about their life back in the capital city and their status more generally but anyway yes Go, go and read your, your Pliny's letters, foundational stuff. And also go and read your, your Husbandry by Isabel Bannerman. And go and read your Orwell's Roses by Rebecca Solnit. I realised that stumbling upon it as I did, I probably didn't do it justice. She is the most brilliant writer. She is so engaged and thoughtful without being lecturing. And she also has the confidence to, to repeat herself, which I think is, is sometimes the sign of a very good writer. You, this is what I was talking about in, in the Isabel Bannerman book, but here is more explicit, more obvious. She starts each section of the book with a variant on the line, in 1936, George Orwell planted roses. In 1936, a young writer planted roses. In 1936, a man in, in Wellington planted roses, etc., etc., which is a really fun 
and quite subtle way of showing, yes, this is one of those collections of discursive thoughts from one starting point, but I'm not going to hide that. I'm going to make it clear. I'm going to make it absolutely explicit. As someone who has written a similar book of, of discursions from the same point, but with probably less, well, certainly considerably less aplomb, I appreciate seeing that kind of thing. Uh, yes, yeah, so go and go and go and pick up a copy of that, and otherwise have a wonderful week gardening and reading and whatever else you're doing. Try to remember bread for all and roses too. I hope the bread part of your week is not too onerous, and there's plenty of time for the rosy bits. I am off now to look at someone plant a tree in honour of the king. So let's hope they do it right. Uh, please do go and support the podcast if you enjoyed this, either by leaving a rating and review on wherever you listen to this. They're really easy to do. It takes a second. Be really effusive. Remember that it really has changed your life. You spent 30 minutes listening to it. That's, that's a change. You could have done something else with that. So, so life-changing, I think, does apply. And also go and support it, if you can, by going to ko-fi.com slash bendark and buying me a coffee. I will put a link to that underneath this podcast as well. Thank you very much and goodbye. Can we get you a drink? Oh, no thanks. I'll just be a minute. I wanted to ask you, have you ever hired a gardener named Carl? Mrs. Bennett, please sit down. Yes? <laughs>